Good morning, everybody. It sure is good to be at Green Street this morning and um, to see so many of you that I love and uh, remember so fondly. I, I um, just stand here and I think I need to see Joe and Dewey and Charlie and Herb. Herb would have been back here. Um, all of those great saints have got Mr. Jernigan. Now, a lot of y'all don't remember Mr. Jernigan. You didn't know him. Uh, he'd come up here every single Monday morning and get a hospital list. And that dear old man would go to the hospital and visit the hospital every Monday morning. And to tell you something else about Mr. Jernigan, he was one of about three men or four men during the Depression that quietly mortgaged their homes and brought the money to the church to keep the doors of this church open. This church has a great history. You're a part of a great body of Christ uh, here in this part of North Carolina. And I'm honored, I'm honored to be back here. I hope you've got a copy of God's Word. You'll take it this morning and look with me at the first epistle of Peter. A number of years ago, young girl by the name of Demi Lee Brennan, uh, nine years of age, happy little girl, vivacious, uh, just active like any little nine-year-old would be, all of a sudden became sick one day. Parents really did not know what was wrong with her, put her to bed. By the next day, she had gotten worse. They decided they needed to get to a doctor. And so they took her down to the family doctor, both of them, because they were just so concerned about how poorly she was doing, went in to see the doctor, and he turned to them and he said, now listen, I need for you to take her from here straight to the hospital. I'm going to come right behind you. We're going to check her in. I've got to run some tests on her as quickly as we can. So the parents, you can imagine what they must have felt like took little Demi Lee over to the hospital. They ran some tests, and a number of doctors came into the room and looked at that mom and dad and said, um, we need to tell you that we have got to take her as soon as we can into surgery. Her liver is dying. We don't know why, but we have called and already put her on a transplant list and as soon as we can secure a liver, we're going to do a transplant. Well, they found a liver quickly. They took her into surgery. And uh, Demi Lee came through that surgery just unbelievably well. Uh, in fact, she recovered so quickly. She was able to go home sooner than they thought. And uh, they brought all the anti-rejection medicine they thought she would need. They brought it in, told the parents how to give this medicine to her, and she went home, and she did great for about a year. But at the end of that year, she became sick again, and she got a little sicker, and the parents thought, don't tell us this is going to happen again. So they put her in the car. They took her to the doctor. The doctor came back, and he said, I've got to tell you, you've got to take her back over to the hospital. I'm going to have to admit her. We're going to have to run some tests on her. And uh, so they did. But when they came back into the room this time, they looked at the parents and said, her body, her liver is rejecting the anti-rejection medicine. 
Now they said, well, we don't understand. What do you mean? What is going on? They said, we don't understand. We don't, um, uh, we don't have a full understanding of it. And it is something we can't explain, but her blood type has gone from O negative to O positive. Like, like you, you've heard that before, right? No, you have never heard that because this is about the only case ever in medical history. And they said, well, how did that happen? And the doctor said, we don't know how that happened. All we can say is a miracle has happened. She doesn't need the rejection medicine any longer. She has become what that new liver is, and that is O positive. And they said, well, how often does this happen? They said one in about seven billion chances. In other words, it doesn't happen. Now, let me tell you something. Do you realize that's what happened to you when you got saved? When you got saved, when Peter speaks of you being sprinkled with the blood of Christ, it changed your spiritual DNA. It changed who you were. It changed who you are, and it has changed you for all of eternity. That's why Paul comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, for those who are in Christ, you have become a new creation. All the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You in Christ are no longer the you you used to be. You are the new you in Jesus Christ. Now, that's what Peter begins to talk about in the first chapter of 1 Peter. So if you've got your copy of God's Word and you're there, let me give you just a quick background of this book. He's not writing to a church. This is one of those rare epistles that's written to an entire region. In fact, he gives you the region right here in verse 1 when he speaks to all of those in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia who are chosen. He's writing to an entire region. We know it today as Turkey. Uh, as the nation of Turkey. That's where all of these areas were. These were Jews that had come to Jesus Christ. Uh, They had walked out of Judaism. They had left the law behind, and they came to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then all of a sudden, in around 64 uh, AD, everything begins to come off the rail. Uh, They begin to be persecuted Uh, They're under persecution now. If you remember the year 64, that's when uh, this epistle was written. Uh, Peter was in Rome. He writes this epistle, uh, most likely from Rome, in the year 64. The year 64 was the year of the great fire of Rome. Out of the 14 districts of Rome, 10 were burned by fire. There were only four districts of Rome not touched by the fire. It started somewhere down around the Circus Maximus, down in one of the stables there. Nero was not in the city at the time. He was off somewhere else. But it is almost certain that Nero had the fire started. He wanted to demolish Rome and rebuild the city for his glory. And so when he comes back to Rome to try to do something, they couldn't put the fire out for six days. 
For six days, it burned out of control. Nero comes back into town to try to oversee uh, saving the city of Rome. Uh, And uh, in, in doing that, he's got to find somebody to blame. And so he blames the Christians for this. And he blames the Christians. And as he does that, he begins to persecute these Christians for setting the city of Rome on fire. So he persecutes them by, he takes some of them and he impales them on great poles. He dips them in pitch and he puts them up in his garden and he will take garden parties through his gardens at night and he will light the way by setting Christians on fire. Sounds like a neat guy, doesn't he? He was a madman. (laughs) He was an antichrist was what he was in all honesty. But that persecution then spreads from Rome out across the Roman Empire. And now these Christians are beginning to be jailed. They're beginning to lose their personal property. They're having their personal property. See, they're being thrown in prison. And many of them are even facing not just persecution, but death as well. And so they write Peter, the great apostle, and they say to Peter, what's going on? We don't understand this. We thought that when we followed Jesus Christ, uh, then our lives would be protected. We would be safe, that life would be different than it was before. And so they began to assume that they were no longer saved. They thought, well, we must have lost our salvation. Christians don't struggle like this. Christians don't go through this kind of pain. Christians don't go through this kind of hardship. So we evidently have lost our salvation. And Peter writes them back, beginning in verse 3. Right at the outset of this epistle, he is going to give them the security of salvation. Now, you don't hear a lot of preaching about the the eternal security of the believer, and you don't hear a lot uh, about our, our salvation and uh, how secure we are, but I want to tell you something. After 43 years of study, after 43 years of pastoring, the one thing that I come across more and more and more in the Word of God is this whole concept that if you are saved, you will never be lost. Amen. Now, I just want to share that. I don't know why God's put it on my heart to share this with you this morning, uh, but I'm going to share this with you because somebody here is struggling in this area, and you wonder, am I really saved? And I'll have to admit to you, there are times at 34,000 feet when you hit some really severe turbulence, I have questioned my own salvation. I've gone through the Romans road a number of times at 36,000 feet. I've never questioned my call to preach, but I have questioned my eternal security. I have questioned whether or not I really was saved. So let's go to the text now, and let me just walk you through a couple of these verses, and I want you to just really get this down in your soul. Take some notes, write some things down. Listen, because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, you have not only eternal salvation, you have eternal security. Number one, first thing, we have eternal security because of God's provision. Now watch this in verse 3. In verse 2, he's already talked about God the Father. You can look at that. You, you see the work of the Spirit, and you see the noun Jesus Christ, 
who has sprinkled us with his blood. And he's already spoken of the Trinity right there. Second verse of this epistle. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. He goes back to God the Father. He calls him Father twice now. Two verses, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Now, do you know what born again means? It means born again. That's what it means. It is the aorist active participle. Now, you say, well, why do you tell us that? Because I want you to know that I studied Greek. No, I want you to know there's a reason for that. The aorist is this. It points to a moment somewhere in the past that at that moment, somewhere in the past, it was the work of God through Jesus Christ that you responded to, and he saved you. Now, the active voice means this. It is the subject who is carrying out the work. And the subject here is God, our Father. The subject is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. That is, he is the one who saved you. You contributed nothing but the sinner to the salvation process. You want to know what you contributed to your salvation? You provided the sinner. I'm going to stand over here. Amen. Amen goes right there. That's what we did. That was our contribution to the whole deal. Everything else was God. His work through Jesus Christ saved us. So when you come to the place and you ask the question, you know, can I, I've lost my salvation. You're asking the wrong question. Can I lose my salvation? You never earned your salvation. It's not yours to lose. I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed to him against that day. He did all the work. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. The better question to ask in all of that is this, is can Jesus Christ ever lose his position at the right hand of the Father? Now, what in the world would cause that to happen? What in the world would cause Jesus Christ to lose his position at the right hand of the Father? Sin. So the question becomes, can Jesus Christ sin? And the answer is no. So the fact of the matter is, he can never lose his position at the right hand of the Father because he is sinless and he cannot sin. I won't get into all of that debate of, well, I won't get into it. Um, he cannot, is it, can, can, it will he, he cannot or he will not? He cannot. He cannot, but that's my belief. He cannot sin, so he will not sin, so he will not fall, so you will never lose your salvation. Now that is the question right there. Now look at what he says. He comes and he does this. He takes this whole thing of our being born again and he attaches it, look at this, to a living hope. Not just a hope, I had hope last night that we would beat the Catholics. But my Clemson Tigers dashed my hope against the rock of reality. 
I didn't have a living hope. I had a dead hope. It was tough in that room last night in that motel with my wife. Um, it was rough. It was, it was so bad, she, cut, she turned Clemson off and she turned Alabama on. I thought, ah, I just turned over and I pulled the covers up over my head. <laughs> to a living hope. Now, it's a hope that's alive. That's the, that's the modifier there. It's a hope that is living. It's not, a just, uh, uh, it's not just a wish. I wish Clemson had won. I wish the Cowboys would go to the, you know, Super Bowl. My grandchildren wish I would take them to Disney World. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. They're not going to get my money. Anyway, it's a living hope. It's alive. That's how the hope is described. It's an alive hope. It's real. It is hope that is certain. It's not a wish. Don't ever read hope in the New Testament as a wish. I hope it could be so, or I hope it might be so, or hope it will be so. Listen, it's none of that. It is a certainty. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, it is a living hope in what? Well, just watch at what he says, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. I have, you have, you should have, you should understand this. We have a living hope in an inheritance that is put away for us. Now, you know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is something that somebody else has worked for, and they die, and they leave it to those who don't deserve it. Now listen, let me, let me tell you, you've worked all your life, you've saved, you've not gone on trips, you drove that car for 10, 12 years just to put money aside, you've not updated the house, you've just put the money aside one day, you and your sweetie, you're going to retire, y'all are going to go to the mountains, you're going to get you a place up there, you're just going to retire, kick back, look at the leaves, all of that, it's going to be wonderful, you're going to drop dead before it happens. I can tell you, you're going to die. We're going to bring your body down here. Pastor Brandon's going to preach your funeral, and then we're going to go down there and have fried chicken and potato salad. (laughs) And that son-in-law that you never really liked or trusted is going to be there at the reading of your will, and all that money you saved and scrimped and put away, he's going to get him a tricked-out F-150 for about (laughs) $85,000. You should have tied that stuff when you had the chance to do it. That's what an inheritance is. Willis and Arlene Hatch lived in um, Alto, Michigan, Little farm community of about 70 people. Sweet little community, little Methodist church that was there. They had no children. Willis farmed 80 acres of land. Uh, He was a smart farmer. They saved, they scrimped. She taught school. They put up everything that they had. They saved it. They worked their entire life. And then tragically, um, one day, the two of them driving somewhere had a, a, an automobile accident. Ar- Ar- Arlene passed away uh, at the scene. Willis lived a few days, and then he passed away. 
The people in Alto were shocked a few months later when they all got a letter from the lawyers of Willis and Arlene Hatch. Willis and Arlene had saved over $3 million. That was their estate. And they left everybody in that little farming community a piece of the inheritance. There were farmers able to save their farm. There were families that were able to put their children through college now because they left them uh, a substantial amount. Every kid at that time was able to go to college in Alto because of Willis and Arlene Hatch. Some farmers got new farm equipment. They asked the pack pastor down at the Methodist church. They said, what about that? He said, we were shocked. We were surprised. None of us deserve this, but we're so thankful for what Willis and Arlene. Listen, let me tell you something. None of us deserve what Jesus Christ won for us on the cross, but it's ours. It's ours. You're going to get an inheritance one day, and I want you to look at this. I want you to see three things that Peter's going to say about it. He says it's going to be imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away. Now listen to this in the Greek. Amthartos, amiantos, amarantos. It is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's imperishable. Everything in life, everything in this world, everything in this universe has sown into it the seeds of death and decay. You know, this is a beautiful church. Debbie was saying as she pulled up, she drove, she's on her way back. Um, she'll look beautiful. It takes time and money to look good like that girl does. Um, she'll, she'll be back before the end of this service. But she, dropped, she says, it's such a beautiful church. And um, I said, it is. It's a beautiful place, but it costs to keep it up, doesn't it? Amen. It costs to keep it up. Why? Because it has built into it the fall of man, the fall of this world. Uh, everything is in a state of decay. Everything is in a state of falling apart. But here Peter comes and he says, that inheritance of yours is imperishable. It will not perish. It does not have the seeds of sin and decay and death sown into it. Not only that, but it is also undefiled. Your fingers have a mixture of oil and minerals so that everything you touch gets a little bit of your stain on it. Now, if you really want to see this, go get a brand new shotgun and grab that shotgun around the barrel and take your hand off of that barrel blue and look at your fingerprints. And if you don't take some oil and get that off, it's going to begin to rust over time. What Peter is saying is this. He is quoting, he's quoting the great theologian M.C. Hammer, can't touch this. Can't touch this our inheritance. The hands of this world, the fallen hands of humanity will never defile it and it will never fade. It is unfading. Time will not affect it. Sun will not fade it. The salt air down at the beach will not fade it. Let me tell you something. It will not fade. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away. All of that. Now, notice what he's done. He's given you three negative adjectives here. 
and that's all he knows to do is to tell you what it's not. He has no language available to him to describe to you what it is. It's beyond human language. Now look, man, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be running around this place right now. That's what's reserved for you. You say, well, I've never thought of it like that. God hasn't really got that for me. He's got it for you. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that inheritance is yours. You say, but I, I didn't contribute to it. You better believe you didn't contribute to it. But I didn't, I didn't add to it. No, you can't add to it. You did not earn it. That's why we call him Savior. Wonderful God. Majesty. Now, that's just his personal right there. That is his provision. Now, let me show you now, secondly, we have eternal security because of his preservation. Go back to verse 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Now, watch it. what he says next. Reserved in heaven for you. God has it preserved. Your reservation is under his preservation. That is, that's a perfect tense right there. It means that um, it has always been watched over. The perfect tense gives us the sense of all time. He has always been preserving your reservation. For all time, it's been preserved. And not only that, it is the passive voice. It is God who is doing the preserving. It's not you. It's not me. We're not keeping it. He has reserved it in heaven for you. How much time do I have, brother? Because this is all the introduction. I hadn't started preaching yet. <laughs> at 9.30? 9.50? 10.50. Okay, 10.50. All right, here we go. Listen, this is what he says. He says, reserved in heaven for you. Now, just stop and think about that. God has always had a place for me reserved, his preservation. He watches it. Several years ago, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've I have to go through Atlanta to catch a plane to go somewhere else. You know, the old saying is true, you got to go through Atlanta to get to heaven. And uh, living in Jacksonville, now living in Birmingham, the first stop you make out is you have to go to Atlanta, and then you go out to wherever. Several years ago, I was preaching at the state convention in Texas, and it was in Corpus Christi. Now, Corpus Christi is way on down the gulf from Houston. It is about as far down south as you're going to get in Texas. And um, a little part of it is island. You drive out onto it. Uh, but I had to be in Corpus Christi on Sunday night to open, I think it was, the state convention in Texas. And so I had a flight. I preached at First Jack's, and I caught the flight, and I got to Atlanta. Now, every flight going into Atlanta is always delayed by about 10 minutes. And that's if you're lucky. You know, it gets delayed 20 minutes, 30 minutes because of traffic that is always built up in Atlanta. So I caught that uh, early afternoon, about 1 o'clock or so. I drove straight to the airport, got in the plane. We, we were hailed because of traffic. We get to the airport in Atlanta, 
there are two flights out of DFW, had to fly from Atlanta to DFW, then catch a smaller plane and fly down to Corpus Christi. They have two a day, just two flights a day to Corpus Christi. And so, I, you know, you land over here in Atlanta, you're already a little late, and you're down at uh, Concourse E, and you got to go all the way to Concourse A. And so you, you just get there as fast as you can. Um, it, the plane is loading already, and I run down the concourse and get to the gate just in time to see the girl walk over and close the door. Now, that's not a good sign. And there were people running behind me to catch a flight into Dallas-Fort Worth as well. You connect out of there and go on west, or, or you're there in Dallas or Fort Worth. So she closes the door. I get to the counter first, and I say, ma'am, listen, there are only two flights, and one has already left. I said, there's only one other in, in Dallas-Fort Worth to Corpus Christi. I've got to preach tonight. Please, you know, be a Christian. Please be somebody that goes to church. Um, and I said, I've got to be there to preach at a state convention tonight. I have got to get on that plane. I'm sorry, the plane is closed. So she, she doesn't even look at me, say anything to me. The guy who has, he's running behind me, he gets up there and he says, ma'am, we have got to get on that plane. It's y'all's fault that we got here late. We, I, we have got to get on that plane to Dallas. She said, I'm sorry, the plane's gone. Well, he walks over to the big plate glass window and he starts pounding on the window. It's right there. It's right there. All you got to do is open the door. She walks off. I'm standing there with a ticket in my hand. Long story short, I, have just, I just turn around, get a ticket back to Jacksonville and go back home because there's nothing I can do. Now, do you know why she did that? He said, well, she... She didn't have any feelings. She's not, you know. No, you know why she did that? I'm standing there holding the ticket. She walks off. She didn't buy the ticket. She's not interested in the reservation. She didn't buy the ticket. God bought your ticket. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God the Father purchased your ticket to his heaven with the blood of his son. That's why he never takes his eye off the reservation. It's his preservation. It is his provision. But look at the last thing. It's his protection. He comes and he says, to obtain an inheritance, still in verse 4, which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the dunamis. What does that sound like? Dynamite. It's not really the word dynamite, but it means that which has inherent power. It doesn't need power from the outside. It doesn't operate on an outside power. It has power of its own. That's the power of God. We who are, look at this, frureo, military term. Everybody in that part of the world at that time would understand immediately that word. It was a military formation. 
We translate it phalanx. It was devised by Philip of Macedon, utilized by his son, Alexander the Great, to conquer the then known world. That's why these Macedonians could take 50,000 troops and defeat Darius and these Parthians who had an army of somewhere around a million. You know what they would do? You know what a phalanx is? Rome would take this and conquer the world with it. What you do, what Rome would do is this. They would interlock their, sword, their, their shields with one another. They had these big curved shields that would interlock. You had that front line that would stretch a little over a half a mile. 10,000 men in one half a mile block. They would interlock their shields. They would pull out their short swords, and the men on the front row could jab from behind those shields. But the men behind them and the row behind them and the row behind them had what were called hoplites, H-O-P-L-I-T-E. They were spears that were anywhere from 10 to 15 to 18 feet long. They had this leaf-shaped head that was piercing that long pole that that spear was on, and at the back they had a metal weight so that it was perfectly weighted. They could lay those spears down in between those shields, and they would move masses of people back into retreat as they moved forward. That's the word that's around you. God's protection around your life. God's protection around your inheritance. You have eternal security. It is guarded by God himself. Now I'll close with this. I lived that out when I left here in a very real way. We went in 1999 to Dallas. Courtney had just graduated right here at Southwest, um, Southwest Guilford, just graduated from high school, wanted to go to um, Campbell. She wanted to go and study law at Campbell we were moving to Texas. We gave her the option. She went out. She visited Dallas Baptist University. And she came home. She said, Daddy, that's where God wants me. So she went to school there. She finished in three years. And uh, in, the, in the meantime, I had taken her to Israel, just the two of us, along with the choir at First Dallas and the orchestra. And I said, come on and go with me to Israel. And so she traveled with me, and when we were in Israel, God called her to Lebanon as a missionary. We came home, and she said, Daddy, God's called me to the mission field. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you want to go back to North Carolina, you know, or Georgia, that's a real mission field right there, <laughs> you know. That's foreign, that's foreign land. Um, she says, God has laid on my heart to go to Lebanon. And um, without trying to show any emotion at all, I said, well, let's pray about it. Mom and I will pray with you about that. Long story short, she graduated in three years, and in December, at uh, just having turned 
20 years of age, she was the youngest Southern Baptist a journeyman on the field. And I'll never forget, it was a day after Christmas that we took her to the airport. And we walked her down that day to the plane. And I watched her just disappear down that hallway and onto a jet. I stayed there and I watched the plane take off and I went home. And at supper time, I sat down at the table and I just wept. I just wept. And I don't know what it was about supper time, but every night at supper, I couldn't do anything but cry. And I prayed. And one night, sitting at the table by myself, probably 15 minutes before supper was ready, praying and crying, God spoke to my heart and he said, now listen, you've done this enough. You may be her daddy, but I'm her father. And I've got my eye on your child. Now stop all this and trust me. I don't know if you're here this morning and you're fretting about some report the doctor has given you or some place your child or grandchild might be or that you are about to receive a pink slip in the days ahead at work or what you are worried about or concerned about, let me assure you of one thing. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're saved. Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Pastor Brandon's going to come and stand here. Pastor Parker's going to come, and he's going to just give us a little bit of music. But I don't know what God's saying to your heart, but I always give an invitation when I preach because you may be here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You, you, you say, but I'm in church every week. Well, let me tell you something. That's not what God's going to ask you one day. He will ask you, did you put your faith and your trust in his son? Uh, did you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Is he the Lord of your life? If not... I, I'm certain that God's speaking to your heart. I trust that wherever the Word of God is preached and the gospel is presented, God's Spirit is there and is speaking. This morning, if God's speaking to you and you've never done that, why don't you come to Pastor Brandon? I can tell you, he knows how to lead you to the Lord. He knows how to share Christ with you. Why not in this moment give your life to Jesus? Just slip out. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. You come down and give your life this morning to the one who died for you. And beyond that, the one who was resurrected and who is waiting for you. Others of you may need to just come and join this church. You've been visiting. 
three, four months, six months you've been visiting, you know by now that this is where God wants you to be. This should be your church home. I invite you to come and make this church. I know this church. You couldn't find a better church in North Carolina to be a part of than this church right here. And yet still others of you that are here this morning, something's going on in your life. It's caused you to doubt. It's caused you to question. You've struggled with, maybe you've struggled with it for years. Maybe your wife or husband, maybe a husband and wife, maybe a family, you just need to come to the altar right now. Would you slip out? Just step out right now. You come. Make your way here. You move, someone else will move. You come, someone else will come. Let the Lord use you this morning. Respond to what he's saying.